clearly answered. And, um, and so please uh, forgive me if you don't hear your question being specifically answered. But I have a few here that I'm going to address uh, our, our teachers here. And, um, and this one is really uh, not, they're not necessarily related to the, um, to the message. Some of them are. But I'm going to fire this one at you, uh, 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 Dr. Lawson. Um, it's got here that as we celebrate this year being the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, what would you say is the greatest danger facing the church today and what would you prescribe as the solution? Obviously they're thinking about, okay, there was a problem 500 years back and there was a solution that was prescribed in the Reformation. Okay, so what is it now? Well, the Reformation was all about the recovery of the one true saving gospel of Jesus Christ that had become lost under the, the cloak of darkness of the Church of Rome that had become a self-righteous system of salvation. And the five solas of the Reformation um, were really one sola, which was the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can holy God be reconciled to sinful man, and how can sinful man be reconciled to holy God? I think every generation um, is in the fight to recover the gospel and to retain the gospel. And as I said earlier, I think everything else in one sense is secondary to what is primary. Um, and even many of the social and moral issues that we fight um, are really simply peripheral. And what is primary is the recovery of the gospel. And as the true gospel is recovered, these other issues uh, decrease. So I, I would say that that is the, the issue of the day for this generation just as it was 500 years ago. I don't, I don't think anything has changed, but it was the same 100 years ago and 200 years ago and 300 years ago. Uh, it's always the fight for the gospel, and to even be more specific, it hinges on the written word and the living word to have clarity with the scripture and clarity with the Savior in, in recovering this gospel. Thank you for that. Russell, I've got one here for you. Um, uh, you've been a disciplinarian, or you probably needed a lot of discipline in the past. I know you did from Dad. Um, um, but we've got a, di discipline from a, di a question about discipline from a different quarter, a higher quarter. Uh, what does discipline from God look like in the believer's life? Can you give an answer to that one? <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes it's very hard to... Um, to do, decide or decipher is it a discipline you're going through or is it a trial and sometimes they're one and the same things and Christian is always um, promised they'll be in trials there'll be trials coming your way we're to look forward to that James teaches that don't be concerned that you're facing various trials 
um, depends what's going on in your life as to whether you perceive that, I think, as discipline from God or whether you see that as a trial you're going through to strengthen your faith. But it has the same outcome. It will strengthen your faith. And in Hebrews 12, you're talking about God always disciplines the son that he loves. And I think and Dr. Steve Lawson has talked about that a wee bit um, uh, today. So um, I don't know that there's any difference, but you will know the difference. If there's sin in your life, then you won't know. You will see it as discipline, and you probably won't be able to see it as anything else. But to other people looking on, it looks like they're going through a real trial. And, you know, we've gone through trials in our lives too. And, um, and you've always got those really wonderful, encouraging Christians that will come up to you and say, hey, what have you done wrong? Um, God's really sort of getting at you, you know. Um, you know, you've lost somebody's, you, a child and your family's died. You know, it can be really serious stuff at times. I, I don't think that that's God is disciplining you. If there's a trial going through, and I look at Job's life, and here, what had he done wrong? You know, compared to us, nothing. Um, but there's this lesson that's been taught to the angelic beings and, and for our learning that when God gives a person faith and it's real faith, they never leave it. No matter how big the trial is, you know, you're going you're to come out the other side loving Jesus even more. So I don't, I don't know how to tell the difference between a, a, a trial or discipline, only I think you will know, but... I, I'm not the expert on all of this. So. Well, you want me to say something? Yeah. Okay, sure. yeah, sure. Um, I think the question was, re- repeat the question. I think I answered it. Anyway. Yeah. It's about a trial. What does it, what, what does it look like when God disciplines us? Yeah. Basically, that was a yeah. question. Just as a parent has different levels of discipline with a child... So I think God has different levels uh, of discipline for us. And I think it begins with uh, loss of peace, loss of power, loss of joy. It then escalates as, it, as the sin would be more serious or our failure to repent and confess. That it works its way up the ladder to loss of opportunity loss of health, and it ultimately escalates to loss of life. And we see that in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. Uh, We see that in the church at Corinth when Paul says many of you are asleep, which is a euphemism for a believer dying. And so it's just like with my children, I did not spank for everything. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, you go to your room. Sometimes it's you're not, you're not going to the ball game. Uh, sometimes you're receiving my rebuke and correction. Uh, sometimes it's, it's you're going to have to pay back what you broke. Um, or sometimes it, it is a spanking. Uh, so there's different levels of discipline that a parent uh, administers, and I also do not believe that all sin is the same. Um, even when you look at the Mosaic Law, some sin requires the death penalty. Um, other sins simply are an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which means nothing more than the, the, the punishment should fit the crime. Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, and so if you 
Uh, if you double park someplace, you should not get the death penalty. Um, if if you kill At someone, least it's on the pastor's one. Yeah, if and if you kill someone, it shouldn't be a fifty dollar fine. That there are steps and grades in which the more serious the offense, the more serious the punishment. I believe it's the same in our spiritual life with the Lord. Uh, there are different stratas and different levels of discipline. You can read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 as David asked that the Lord would restore the joy of his salvation. Why would he pray that? Because he had, he, because of unconfessed sin in his life. The Lord's discipline was heavy-handed, and he lost his joy. He then says, then I will teach sinners the way. Um, well, he obviously had lost his influence with sinners, and there was a loss of spiritual power in, in his life. And so I, I think you've got the idea there. And, and so we, we, we must understand that, that there are different uh, degrees of, of punishment depending upon, one, the seriousness of what we've done, number two, how stiff-necked we are to, to not humble ourselves and, and repent. And um, obviously there's much more that we can say. Uh, it is difficult to know sometimes the difference between a trial and, and, and discipline However, the Holy Spirit has come into the world to convict men of sin. And uh, there are distinct times in my life when I've gone through a trial and I'm painfully aware that there has been sin in my life. And it is only reasonable for, reasonable for me to assume that there's a cause and effect going on here and it should lead me to repentance. Yes, I, I, was thinking, I was just thinking then, it's a, it's a healthy way to, to look at it um, if you want to look at the negative things that happen, whether it just be uh, some sickness or whatever. But just to brush it off as nothing, uh, it's a healthy way for a believer to be soft and tender toward God and to um, just come clean with him about everything. That's the best way to look at it, and uh, rather than just treat it blase. Yeah, no, I think we have to examine ourselves. Mm. And Lord, what are you teaching me? And, and are you convicting me of something? And when the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, it's not a broad, general brushstroke. It's a pinpointed, you spoke to your wife, you did not fulfill this with your child, you were wrong with your attitude towards your pastor. You know, whatever it is, the Holy Spirit pinpoints conviction of sin with a specific, not a broad, general, um, I don't know why I feel so guilty. Excellent. Uh, we're going to move on. I, I think this one is again addressed to you, Dr. Lawson, um, uh, because you have mentioned the doctrine of regeneration, and um, which seems to have gone missing in the modern Christianity. In modern Christianity, you also have emphasised the need to make a decision, a decisive decision. Mm -hmm. The question is, um, how do you reconcile the two? Obviously, regeneration, which is a work of God, mm -hmm. holy and solely, and making a decisive decision. Yeah, sure, absolutely, it's easy. Um, <laughs> Well, it really is. Um, regeneration is monergistic. That means there is only one active agent in the new birth, and that is God. It is not synergistic, meaning it's God and man cooperating, and they each have power of veto to cancel out the other. Um, 
there is nothing that the sinner can do. Uh, what can a dead man do? I remember the day in class when the professor asked in seminary, what can a dead man do? And a student in the back row yelled out, stink. <laughs> That's it. Um, there's nothing else a dead man can do. A dead man cannot believe. A dead man cannot repent. I mean, you can stick a pen in a dead man and he feels nothing. Um, so regeneration is a sovereign, monergistic work of God in the spiritually dead soul. It is regeneration that precedes faith. It is regeneration that produces faith. In the act of regeneration, God gives a new heart. He gives a new mind. He, he, gives, uh, he grants repentance and faith. Um, man, it is his responsibility to believe, and he does with the faith that God gives him, and he always does with the faith that God gives him. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel to every living creature on planet Earth and call them to commit their life to Christ. Now, there are some hyper-Calvinists who get nervous when they hear someone like me saying, you need to commit your life to Christ. That's the way Jesus talked. That's the way Paul talked. That's the way Peter talked. I mean, they are so hyper-Calvinistic that they've gone beyond the Bible. And so what we are to do is to preach the gospel, plead with sinners to be saved, urge them, beg them, and leave the results to God. And God will regenerate all those who are his elect. So there's a very odd... No one will believe in Jesus Christ until God first raises them from the dead and regenerates them with the, the, the new life of God. So, it's the heads and tails of the same coin, and to put it another way, regeneration and conversion are the heads and tails of the same coin. Regeneration is God's work. Conversion is man's response to regeneration. Now, let me make a further theological distinction. Sanctification is synergistic. Regeneration is monergistic, only one active agent. Sanctification is synergistic in which there are two active agents, God and man. We are no longer dead in trespasses and sin. Uh, we now have a new heart and a new mind, and we are alive unto God, and God has given us um, the grace now to follow Christ. Yet, we are still totally dependent upon God for this grace, but we are no longer plagued by moral inability. We now have moral ability through the new birth. So it is synergistic in sanctification, monergistic in the new birth. Excellent. That's, um, yeah, made it really, really plain. See, said it was easy. So um, that's fantastic. I've got another one here, um, totally outside the uh, what we've been talking about. Um, if someone is struggling with habitual sin, does that mean that they're not saved? Well, there's a difference between struggling with and, and, and giving into. Okay. If someone is continually struggling with sin, that in and of itself would not mean that they are unconverted, I don't think. And I, I would need more clarification. I mean, this is just a hypothetical question about a hypothetical situation. And it's hard to give a specific answer to a broad question. 
But it's not just the struggle that would make someone unconverted if they walk in that sin habitually. That would be the call to question the, the, the validity of their salvation, but not the struggle. Um, so, but I, I would need more... I would need more clarification. I would need more information uh, to be able to give an answer on that. Yeah. You got anything to add to that, Russell? Uh, yeah, I, c- um, I think sometimes that when uh, people are struggling with sin, um, they certainly won't have assurance of salvation because their life is not lining up to what Christ has called them to. And Jesus says that if any man follow up, uh, come up to me, let him take up his cross daily and, and then follow me. So... Um, there's, there's a sense or there's a real sense in which you've actually got to die to self and come alive to God. And what tells me when a person is struggling uh, with sin and they're wanting to give it up, they tell me they love their sin too much and they don't love Christ enough. And that's simply, it's as, it's as simple as that, really. Um, but it might be that there's some habitual thing that they need a help with to, to overcome. Um, but if they don't overcome, even with the help, um, then they really are, are loving their sin more than they love Christ. Um, so uh, I want to yes, say yes and no. It doesn't mean that, as I'll agree with um, Dr. Lawson, that it doesn't mean that they're not saved, but they certainly won't have that real assurance that they are <laughs> if they will not give it up. You've got to put off and put on, and, and the, the Scripture's full of that, putting off and putting on, and God gives us the power uh, to do that. Um, once you're brought into the kingdom of God and to his family, then you have the spirit of God living in you. He's the most powerful agent and person in the whole universe is the spirit of God. And to say that he's not powerful enough to help you overcome sin, you means you love your sin and you're not giving him that authority and that right in your life. And you're not submitting yourself to the word of God. Mm, good. We'll have a couple more. And... Um uh, we've got another question here. How can people who have not heard God's word be condemned to hell? Yeah, I'd love to answer that. <laughs> when Adam sinned, his sin was imputed to the entire human race. So you became a sinner over 6,000 years ago, whatever age you want to put on uh, Adam. Um so Adam's sin is sufficient to condemn anyone to hell. That's number one. Number two, every person born in the human race is born with a sin nature, inherited from Adam. And the fact is they are a sinner, and sinners are offensive to a holy God. That is also uh, a condemnation. Third, they commit acts of sin. And God has written his law upon their heart. And they are sinning against their own conscience. So those who have never heard the gospel already have three strikes against them. It's not that God is sending innocent people to hell uh, who have never sinned. Uh, they, they are guilty. They are under the wrath of God. Um, they have sinned against God. The wages of sin is death. Uh, they deserve to go to hell, and the fact that they go to hell is just and right, whether they've heard the gospel or not. It's not like they're innocent. It's not like they're 
um, that they're not guilty before God. They are, they are wretched sinners in the eyes of God, and they have sinned against their own conscience, and they have sinned against the law of God, the moral law of God that God has written upon their heart, Romans 2, 16. So, they don't go to hell because they never that they rejected the gospel, they never heard the gospel. They don't go to hell because they never heard the gospel. They go to hell because they're a sinner. Um, the real mystery is not why do they go to hell. The real mystery is why do we go to heaven? I mean, the real mystery is why did we hear the gospel? And why did God open our ears and open our eyes to the gospel? Um, if anything is unjust, it's for us to go to heaven. Because we certainly don't deserve to go to heaven. What is just is for the person who's never heard the gospel to go to hell. That is perfect justice. So, you know, that would be the answer to that. That's why we have to go preach the gospel to every living creature. Um, to proclaim Christ. But the fact that they have not heard the gospel does... I mean, that's not the determining factor. Adam's sin has been imputed to them. They were in Adam, Romans 5, verse 12. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. You say, well, that's not fair. You would have done the same thing. I mean, you're no better than Adam. Um, and, um, in fact, you would have, you would have fallen for, for sin even quicker than he did. So... He was our representative, and he acted in our place. Now, before someone says, oh, I don't want imputation for Adam's sin to be imputed to me, you don't want to go there, because there's two more imputations. There is the imputation of the sin of all those who would believe in Christ. That sin is imputed to Christ. That's not fair. He, he was without sin. He didn't deserve to have your sin. And then the third imputation is his perfect righteousness imputed to the one who believes. That's not fair. That's actually mercy. So, even with imputation, there are two positive and one negative. So, anyway, that's giving a longer answer to the question, but I think we have to be crystal clear on this. And if there was any other way for a, for a person who's never heard the gospel to be saved, then we should never send a, a missionary to preach to them, lest they now reject the gospel and, and now pass from a state of innocence to now they're condemned. I mean, that's crazy. So, anyway, that, that's, that's the answer on that. Uh, yeah, I'd like... I'd just like to say that I think the, the question arises out of a, a, a thinking that it's unfair, that God is unfair, that he hasn't sent the gospel to those people um, to give them a chance. But you can never have that labeled at God because um, it shows the grace of God that the fact that we are saved. And I'd like to go to Matthew 20 to use an illustration there of how... God himself says that he's, he's not unjust. Um, uh, and it's this, the story of the, where the owner, the landowner, goes down into the local hotel or whatever it is and gets some workers to help in the field. He goes right down at the beginning of the day and he, and he promises to pay a denarii. 
Western era. And then he keeps getting workers at halfway through the morning, morning tea time, then lunch time, then afternoon tea time, and then an hour before the day finishes. And he lines up all the workers to pay, and he gets the last guys at work, he pays them first, he pays them a denera. And the guys down the end of the line think, oh man, we're going to get somebody. He comes to them, and they're mumbling and groaning amongst themselves because all they get is a denera. And, and the landowner says, "Don't, isn't it? Didn't you agree to work for a denera? Yeah, we did. He says, well, you can't say that I'm unfair. You can only say that I'm really generous and even paying these other people a denera. So God is not unfair. And so when you liken that principle even to, to that and salvation, it's God is not unfair. He's been over generous by his grace that he even saves anybody. And so we, it heightens his grace for me that, that you and I, are saved because we deserve exactly what those people have never heard the gospel will, will get. Uh, God's arm is not short. God is not sitting in a hammock in heaven. Thinking, oh my goodness, why aren't those people hearing the gospel? Oh my goodness, not get saved. No, no, God, God's arm is not short on salvation. He can save anybody he wants to. And so, therefore, it's, it's just. Um, uh, and that's hard. I, I don't say that privately. I say that humbly and thankful for the grace of God that he's even saved me. Can I say one more thing? The real issue is actually with those who have heard the gospel. And if you're going to go to hell, don't go to hell from Australia. If you're going to go to hell, go to hell from someplace where you've never heard the gospel. Because the greater... The greater amount of light that has been shined to you, there will be a greater condemnation if you reject that light. So, if you're going to go to hell, I want to say it again, don't go to hell from a city where there are many churches and there is gospel preaching. Go to hell from some remote place that where you never hear the truth. I, I think just as there are degrees of reward in heaven, there are degrees of punishment in hell. And there are some places that are even hotter than other places. I think one of the problems there too is that we tend uh, to always start from man's perspective and then kind of look at God and evaluate him from how we think and our perspective. But what Abraham has say, shall not the judge of the earth do right? And he's a just God, and so I think we've got to be, always start with God and then... Yeah. Genesis 18.24. Yeah. Okay, we've got another question here. Uh, we will wrap this up uh, soon. Now, I, I think this question would arise out of, I think it was your first message, Dr. Lawson, uh, about how we are indwelt with Christ. We have Christ living with us. And um, it says, I'm assuming a little bit here, that the question says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? Is it something that we ask for? Um, yeah. I'm sure I ask God to fill me with his spirit uh, before I preach and as I live my Christian life. To be filled with the spirit does, is not the picture of an empty uh, glass and you fill it with water as if the spirit was not already, you know, as if the water was not already in the glass. It's the Greek word plurao, which means to govern or control. And the picture really is of a hand in a glove and that hand uh, controls and governs the glove. So to be filled with the Spirit means that you are empowered and enabled to do what God calls you to do. It's just very simple. So don't think of water being poured into an empty glass. Think of a hand that's in a glove, 
and how the hand, as it fills the glove, is actually governing and controlling uh, the glove. And, and so in the book of Acts, you know, every time someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak with boldness. Um, and in, in Ephesians 5 and verse 18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's making a comparison. What it is to be drunk with wine is much like what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, to be drunk with wine, you come under another influence. You come under the control of, uh, of the wine, and you begin to speak in a way you wouldn't normally speak. You begin to act in a way you would not normally act. Uh, you're somewhat liberated. Um, so it is with being filled with the Holy Spirit. You begin to say what you would not normally say. You begin to act in a way that, is, that rises above really what you would normally do in a situation. And just as you have to keep drinking to remain drunk, so you have to continue to be filled with the Scripture and to yield to the Lordship of Christ and confess sin in order to remain under the dominion and the power of the Holy Spirit. And just like when you stop drinking, it wears off. So when you stop yielding your life to Christ, that too wears off. And so there is only... There is only one baptism of the Spirit at the moment of conversion, but there are many fillings of the Holy Spirit throughout one's Christian life. So, yes, I pray often, regularly, God, fill me with your Spirit. Empower me with your Spirit. Enable me to fulfill this ministry opportunity that you have set before me. Sometimes I will pray, God, fill me with your Spirit. Help me be patient with this person. Help me look beyond the, their awkwardness in order to be able to love them as, as they need to be loved. And only God, the fruit of the Spirit, is then produced. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. So, we, everyone in this room needs to be filled with the Spirit again and again and again and again. And it's actually in the present tense verb in Ephesians 5.18. It could literally be translated, be ye be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to be continuously, continually being filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that's in the imperative form too. It's not sort of an yeah, yeah, option. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It's a command. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're not being filled with the Spirit, you're actually living in disobedience yeah. to God. Yeah, I mean, you're just living your Christian life in your own strength and, and in your own just sheer willpower rather than the divine enablement of the Spirit of God. Yeah, no, thank you. You got anything to add to that, Russell? No, no, no. I see you flicking your Bible open. Yeah, um, I think you can add, but it's, the, the question's been answered. Okay. Thank you. I have a couple more here, but I'm not going to um, ask them. Uh, we're going to call this quits for the evening. And uh, please, again, forgive me if your question hasn't been asked. But I'm sure if you want your question asked, you can hook on to Dr. Lawson or Russell's blog or email and ask them sometime, and you never know, you may get answered, um, the one that you asked. But um, we just want to thank these two gentlemen for this, and um, let's give them a hand for their contribution. Thank you very much again. Can I, can I just say one more thing? Um, is that on? Yeah. Um, there was one question there about habitual sin. 
Um, and it's, it was, as Dr Lawson said, it was, it was pretty wide and it's hard to answer that specifically. Uh, but my heart is, is um, that if you are, and if this is associated with, and you want help with that, then come and see me personally and we'll talk about um, that so that we can even help to get on to higher ground and to overcome the things that might be binding you. I'd hate you to go from here thinking you haven't had a specific answer. And I just wonder, I'll be available all day and all night to help you uh, with that, as I know Dr Lawson would too. So. <laughs>